0: Thanks for tuning in to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like Him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. Uh, I've probably heard hundreds of pastors talk about the different things that we tend to look to for status, right? And there's, you know, kind of like a— Predictable list, typically you'll hear preachers or religious people talk about like uh, a bigger house or a a fancier car or a better salary, whatever whatever that is. But if if you grew up in the 80s as a 10 year old, none of those things mattered. The thing that you look to for status was probably something more like this. Does anyone remember? I can still remember where I was. The first time I saw a Super Soaker commercial, and I remember thinking, if I could only have that. And I remember, like, there was, you know, my parents were, like, masters at getting the off-brand version. But they'd be like, water blaster. And you're like, not the same. It's not the... Now, whoever was manufacturing these was like masters at dissatisfaction because this was released and then like 0.4 seconds later, it was like a bigger tank and more pump action and a, and a backpack and then a paratrooper version or whatever. Like it was, it felt like the goalpost was constantly being moved further out. Like, oh, you have the yellow one? Now you need the camo one. Like I, anyone else with me? Like there was some kind of childhood thing that you thought of like, man, if I could just have that, man, I would have it made. Maybe for you, it was uh, this little thing called the Trapper Keeper, y'all remember? Trapper, what were the people designing these smoking when they designed? This makes no sense whatsoever, and I was never cool enough to have this one. Here is the actual Trapper Keeper I had, and I thought it was so cool. Uh, What's your excuse? I'm late for class because I was sucked into a parallel universe. Oh, I thought that was so cool. Like what a, what a rad excuse. Now I was homeschooled. So my mom never took that excuse <laughs> as valid, understandably. Maybe for you, it wasn't any of those things. Maybe for you then, and maybe still now, it was about fashion. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna trust you all with a photo from my childhood and I need you all to not judge me, okay? Here's a, no, no one's promising that. I'm gonna show it anyway, because it's that kind of day. Uh, here's an actual photo of me and my siblings. and. Um, Here's me, yes. Okay, so for some reason, as a child, uh, the turtleneck and parachute pants combo. <laughs> and I don't know if this was a Midwest thing or not. We didn't call them parachute pants. We called them skids. Like it, and, and the rule with skids was uh, the brighter the color and the higher you could hike them up in your chest, the, the better, right? And you know, you know that you're an 80s child if you hear the word stop and you think either hammer time or collaborate and listen. It's a very divided, but I remember very viscerally like thinking about if I could just have this thing, then I would feel fulfilled, then I would feel complete, then I would feel like I'm a part of something. And some of us are still believing those lies. We're in week two of a short three week series that we're calling The Lies We Live. And it's all about confronting the lies that keep us from both recognizing and stepping into our true identity. And just to say it at the onset, when you enter into a relationship with God, he declares you his dearly beloved child. That is your true identity. That is your true status. You are a loved child of God. That is the truest thing about you. He says to me and you, you are my child and I love you. Now this three week series is about these three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter four. Now last week we talked about Jesus feeling something, hunger. This week we're gonna talk about something that Jesus sees. He's seeing something. Last week, was about trying to get him to doubt the love of the Father, and this week is about trying to get him to doubt the plan of the Father. Last week was about God's provisions. This week is about God's promises. So I want to read the the whole text in its entirety again, Luke chapter four, and uh, and then we'll kind of dive in a little deeper. Starting in verse one. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil, not just one or two or three, but for 40 days. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry, fully God, fully man, he doesn't eat and he experiences hunger. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, which is where this lie always begins, if this is true, if this is who you really are, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. It's worth noting. The Bible is not simply about what happened, but what about, about what always happens. We are all susceptible to the lies that tell us a different story about our identity. And we've been talking about for this series, we're kind of adapting uh, Henry Nouwen's Life of the Beloved, which if you've not read before, I highly recommend it. And he talks about these three lies that we are all tempted to believe when answering the question, who am I? Last week, we talked about what we called the performance lie, the lie that says, I am what I do. I am only the sum of my accomplishments or how, how much value I can bring. Next week, we're going to talk about something called the popularity lie, the lie that tells us I am what others think. I am only as valuable as someone thinks well of me. And this week, today, we're talking about one of these lies, and it's the possession lie that says, I am what I have. Now... The reason that we're talking about identities, that I would argue like identity drives everything that we do, we talked about this last week. Identity drives activity. What you believe to be true about yourself, about ultimate reality, will inform how you live in the world, what you spend your money and time, what you meditate on, what you ruminate on, what you pursue. Identity drives activity. Put another way, identity determines biography. What you believe about yourself will determine the kind of life that you live. And here's why this is so important. Something doesn't need to be true to derail you. It just needs to be believed. You will live out what you believe to be true of yourself, whether it's true or not. And identity drives activity. But in Christ, you have a new identity. In fact, much of the New Testament could kind of be summarized into this one sentence. It's an encouragement to the early church. Live up to what you've already obtained. When we did our series in Ephesians, we kind of divided the letter in half. And the first half is like, here's what's true of you in Christ. Now live like it. Live what you've already obtained. Our identity in Christ is received, not achieved. It's not some ladder that we climb. He's saying, now that you have everything that you need in Jesus, live like it. Live as free people. Now our culture tends to measure value by the things we possess, whether those are like material things or positions of power or platforms or reach or right connections, whatever it is. But what I have can determine how I view myself. And it, and it happened so early, like just a day or two ago, we were at the Kroger self-checkout. It was me and my two oldest boys, five and four. And I'm scanning, checking out, and there's another lady checking out here. And I hear my oldest yell at her, how'd you get that money? <laughs> and I, I turned around real, we're both startled. And uh, she goes, oh, I, I got it from the machine. And Owen goes, how do I get some? I was like, stop accosting this poor lady, right? And she very sweetly, she said, have you been a good boy today? And I'm in the back and I'm like, no. <laughs> but he had, and she gives him a dollar, oh. right? So sweet. So of course, Redmond's like, I'd also like a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my children talk like this. So she gives him a dollar as well. And I, I thank her profusely and she leaves. And my boys turn to me, clutching the dollar and they go, best day ever. It happens early, doesn't it? What we have, what we earn, what we can possess will often affect the way that we see ourselves. Do you ever find yourself feeling better about yourself because you are wearing a new outfit or driving a new car? You maybe walk with like a little bit more of a swagger, you drive for the first time under the speed limit so more people notice your new ride, right? (laughs) On the flip side, when you feel bad about yourself, is it ever because of something you don't have? something you don't possess yet, something you can't afford yet, something that someone else has that you deeply want. The possession lie preys on dissatisfaction. Right, like just last week, we had something called Prime Day, right? You guys familiar with Prime Day? Prime Day, their kind of motto could be summarized like, it will make you feel like I deeply need something that I didn't know existed 10 seconds prior. Have you ever had that feeling? Anyone like log on, you're like, oh, I might as well look around. And you feel like you were satisfied until you start scanning these deals. Like, well, I don't want to lose money on the deal, so I guess I'll take 10. Like, <laughs> everything around us feeds into this dissatisfaction. Material things present themselves as a quick fix for our dissatisfaction. Hold on to that phrase, quick fix. They promise us a rush to numb our underlying disappointment. Now, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with treating ourselves. The problem is... When we let these things define us, and when we look to possessions to determine how we feel about ourselves. Author Richard Foster offers this scathing observation about our modern condition. He says, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. It's been said, we buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. We are made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they are worn out. The mass media have convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. It is time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. But we could just stop right there, couldn't we? To conform to a sick society is to be sick. Let me just ask you bluntly, is it possible that in many ways, culture is wildly out of step with the life that God desires for us? Is, Is it possible that the messages screaming for our attention might even be in opposition to the life of flourishing, the life of abundance that Jesus came to give us? Do you desire more for your life than this insatiable pursuing of more. In order to do that, we need to expose the lies in our life. So back to Luke chapter four then. As a quick reminder, Jesus is just starting his public ministry. So for something like 30 years, he's lived in relative obscurity. No one really knows who he is. No one's following him. As best we can tell, he's not performed any miracles. In fact, here's where his ministry begins in Luke chapter three. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So that's, that's where he begins. He's not done or achieved or accomplished anything and the father says, I love you. I'm, I'm well pleased with you. Some of us need to desperately hear that today. And then here's what happens next, we read this already. Chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. I said this last week, but I think it bears repeating. We, We have to remember that sometimes being led by the Spirit will lead us to wilderness places. Some of us have bought a version of Christianity that, are like, oh, if I'm following God's will for my life, that I won't ever face hardship. I won't ever face difficulty. Jesus demolishes that reality. Sometimes being led by the Spirit means that we will be led into difficult seasons because that is where formation often happens. As a church, we want to go where the Spirit leads, not just the places that are easy. It's our conviction as leaders of this church to go where the spirit leads, not just the path of least resistance. And it's in the solitude of this desert place that the devil then comes to tempt Jesus. The second lie, this possession lie, is found in the second temptation. Here it is in verse 5 again. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, a quick word about the devil or Satan. Uh, He appears in 19 of the New Testament books. His name means adversary or one who opposes. Uh, 1 Peter 5 says this of him, Be sober-minded, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, there are over 29 different titles for Satan. Here are some of them. Uh, He's called the devil in Matthew 4, the serpent in Genesis 3, the great dragon in Revelation 12, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, the evil one, Matthew 3, the prince of demons, Matthew 9, the accuser, Revelation 12, and the tempter, Matthew 4. I say all of that to say this we have an enemy. There is an enemy that wants nothing more than for our marriages to fail. That wants nothing more than for our children to resent us, to get Christians bickering and arguing and divided over things that ultimately don't really matter. We have an enemy, and if we aren't aware of that, we are already in danger. We have an enemy. Now, he uses this phrase in the Gospel of Luke, showed him in an instant. And in the English and the Greek, it's a very strange phrase, showed him in an instant. Some scholars believe he was showing him Rome or the empires and kingdoms of Rome. But historians will, will tell us that there's not a mountain high enough in the Jeshimon, the desert here, to actually see all of Rome. I actually think it's more likely that it is a vision of some kind. Like Super Bowl commercials have nothing on this vision that the devil, the enemy, offers to Jesus. And Satan comes, as he always does, preaching prosperity. He's saying, I thought your father was a king. You should be feasting, not starving. What what is the enemy really saying here? He's saying, "You're you're the son of God. Look, you're in this terrible place in the desert, all alone. You possess nothing, no food or wealth. You're totally alone. I will give it to you. See, we can bypass any more of this humiliation The enemy is saying, you've had 30 years of obscurity living in an obscure town, 30 years of working your dad's construction business. You've had enough. Don't you think it's time to take what's rightfully yours? Does anyone recognize this temptation in your life? And then Satan makes this serious overstatement in verse six. He says, it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. Not surprising. The enemy has a slightly overinflated opinion of himself, I think. Although there is some truth to it. In fact, just in the Gospel of John, multiple times in John's Gospel, he's referred to as the ruler of this world. A quick word. It does not mean, I think, that he literally possesses the nations of the world. What I think it means is that he rules the systems of evil that dominate the nations of the world. Now as a quick aside, and I didn't, I don't have a great segue for this, but I think it's important. This, this is why and you'll hear us talk about this a lot here. We need to preach the Bible in context. We need to read and study in context. It's so easy to kind of cherry pick verses and miss the greater context of what's going on there. I found a photo years ago of one of those like real sweet, like verse a day, like tear off calendars, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, I found this one and I just thought it was great. Uh, if thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine like a nice little flower there. It's really lovely, isn't it? To recognize, who said this? Yeah, Satan, the devil. <laughs> so kinda, kinda ruins the vibe a little bit of the counter. This is why context matters, reading the Bible in context. That's why we need to study in context. Bottom line, Satan is saying, why go it the hard way? If you just worship me now, it could all be yours no pain no cross immediate gratification does that not describe our current cultural moment our, our obsession with immediate gratification put yourself in Jesus' shoes/sandals for a second like Sometimes we see Jesus as sort of this superhero who is invincible, but when Jesus walked on earth among us, he felt things the way we feel them. He wrestled with things the way that we wrestle with them. And in the second temptation, the devil basically says to him, you don't have anything, you're a nobody, but you could be somebody. All this could be yours. Do we recognize where those lies have showed up in our lives? This could all be yours. If. This could all be yours. If Satan is offering him a quick fix to significance, a quick fix to wealth, security, a quick fix to being ruler of everything, a fix that doesn't involve suffering or a cross. And here's a truth that I found to be true, and I think this is true whether you're a Jesus person or not, it's this, shortcut your struggle and you'll shortchange your growth. I can't tell you how many times I've been tempted to do this, by the way, to to cut corners or take the easy way out. I am not saying any of this from a position of like, oh, I have figured it out and I have arrived. I'm telling you this, shortcut your struggle and you'll shortchange your growth. Take the easy way out, the quick fix. And it may for a season suffice, but you'll notice days, weeks, months, years down the road, man, there was some real growth, some real maturing, some roots that needed to go down deep that didn't because I took the easy way out. This is the temptation, a crown without a cross. In fact, Jesus' brother James reminds us of this in James chapter one. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the, what's the word? Crown. Crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so what does Jesus have to do to take this shortcut? All he has to do is bow down and worship. And here's something that you need to know about the possession lie. It always involves worship. Every time. We maybe don't call it that, but it always does. What you say, what you ruminate on, what you habituate, what you meditate on, what you worry about, it's all worship. Worship is not a Christian thing, it's a human thing. The question is, do you know what you're actually worshiping? Do you know what has ultimate place of value and worth in your life? In fact, in a, uh, a few chapters later, Luke chapter 12, and we're going to unpack this in our next series coming up in a couple of weeks, Jesus issues a warning that strikes at the heart of this possession lie. He says, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. My guess is a lot of us, we don't, we don't see ourselves as a greedy person, right? We all know someone who's greedy. (laughs) No one's greedy, but everyone knows someone who is, you know what I mean? But Jesus says, watch out and be on guard. Why does he say, why the double warning? I think it's because he knows that greed is sneaky. It's not always going to be as obvious as the enemy taking you up on a high mountain and saying, bow down and worship me, and all this can be yours. Greed is sneaky, and if we're not vigilant against it, it can easily take hold of our heart. Some of us know this all too well. Greed is simply this insatiable desire for more. I think of this conversation with John D. Rockefeller, who at the time was like the wealthiest person on the planet, and the reporter said, okay, John, how much is enough? His answer was just a little more. Greed is insatiable. This insatiable appetite, desire for more. But I would argue that we do not have a greed issue. We have a worship issue. And Jesus, again, I don't think it's condemning possessions. The problem comes when we look to these things to bring us life, to bring us meaning and purpose. When we fool ourselves into thinking that if I have this thing, whatever it is, that's the answer. And when we chase after those things, whether it's literal wealth or a platform or a title or whatever it is, we worship that thing. You might think, I don't worship things, but the truth is most of us do. If you've ever had or said these words, God, I'll follow you if, or I'll follow you when, or I'll follow you as long as, however you fill in that blank, that is your God. However you would finish that sentence, Which again, by the way, I've had these types of conversations with God, but we have to recognize, God, I'll follow you if, I'll follow you when, I'll follow you as long as, reveals the thing that we've been chasing, the thing that we have held up in the place of ultimate worth. We spend money we don't have to acquire things we don't need in order to impress people we don't like. If we look to stuff to fulfill some sort of emptiness inside of us, we have subconsciously bought into the lie that I am what I have. I am the sum of what I can possess. Satan takes Jesus to a high place overlooking all the riches of the world. And he says, all this can be yours. All you have to do is worship me. But Jesus doesn't buy into the lie. Instead, here's what he says. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Sometimes we need to preach the word of God to ourselves You'll notice in Jesus' responses, he's now said twice, it is written. It's hard to respond to these temptations with it is written if we don't actually know what is written because difficulty does not nullify truth. Just because we are maybe in a difficult season or a wilderness place does not mean that God's word is still not true for us. It's rather than what we think God should be doing in any given moment of time, we need to preach to ourselves what God has already said. Complaining about a silent God with a closed Bible is like complaining about not getting calls with our phone turned off. Like God has given us his word. And I'm not saying it's some sort of like magic potion that you'll flip to and it'll give you the exact solution to your issue. But some of us are so worried about not hearing from God with our Bibles closed shut. We need to not just simply read or glance, but study, immerse ourselves in to live in his Word and to preach it to ourselves and each other regularly, to remind ourselves of the truth of what his word says. Jesus says to the enemy, no, only my father gets first place in my life. I'm not buying what you're selling. And here's why that's so important. This is a truth that I would love for us to kind of wrestle with together, is that every temptation comes with a promise and a price. Usually the promise is over-exaggerated And the price is under exaggerated, right? When you think about how, even think about how modern day commercials are. Do you ever think about how insane it is? That like, usually the depiction is, if you buy this certain brand of chips, all your parties will be off the hook. (laughs) For some reason, Matt, right? If you buy this beer, all of your friends magically become supermodels, just overnight. Like it's, if you do this thing, this will be your reality. It oversells almost always and tries to hide the price. Every temptation comes with both a promise and a price. Do you know why Jesus was able to reject the lie and resist the temptation? It's because he knew who he was. He didn't just like know who he was. He was like rooted in it. He didn't need all of the riches of the world to feel secure. He knew that he was the son who the father loved. His identity was grounded in that and that was enough. Doesn't that sound like the life abundant? That's who I am, therefore, I don't have to keep chasing this. I get to opt out of the rat race that so many people are caught up in, thinking, oh, if I could just get this one thing, that would somehow fill the void in my life. That's where our identity needs to be grounded. God declares of us in Christ, you are my child. I love you. I am well pleased. You are not what you have. We can stop chasing after these possessions. We can stop looking to them to fulfill us. We can stop worshiping things. One of my favorite theologians is a man named N.T. Wright. And he talks about uh, confronting the possession lie this way. He says, at the heart of our resistance to temptation is love and loyalty to the God who has already called us his beloved children in Christ and who holds out before us the calling to follow him in the path which leads to the true glory. In that glory lies the true happiness, the true fulfillment, which neither world nor flesh nor devil can begin to imitate. In fact, I would argue nothing breaks the possession lie quite like worship. That's why often when you see people even worship, very few people worship with fists clenched. (laughs) There's like something ontologically in us that knows this is is how I worship, open hands. God, all of this is on loan to me in the first place. You are the one of ultimate worth. So instead of measuring ourselves by what we have or what we've achieved, we give away. We recognize like we prayed at the beginning. God, I'm just a manager of your portfolio. That's your money, your resources, your time, the talents, the gifts, whatever God has planted in your heart, however he's wired you, You are a steward. That's how we break this lie by saying like, God, it's all, how can I make you known through whatever it is you've given me? Generosity is worship because it rejects bowing down to things and instead reflects our trust in God. That's why Jesus said it is more blessed to give than receive. Do you know why? Because true life, the abundant life does not exist in the accumulation of stuff. He who dies with the most toys still dies. So I, don't, I actually don't have like a nice, neat, tidy application step for you. Maybe, maybe just this week, every time you look at your hands, it's just a simple prayer. God, help me to live like this. Maybe, maybe it's giving something away. Maybe it's living with gratitude. Maybe it's leaving here and just giving like a wild, outrageous tip. You know, Christians are not typically thought well of in the restaurant business, especially on Sundays. What if we reflect this posture of generosity? mean, my value is not found in this. By just being wildly generous. When Satan comes to Jesus and says, all this can be yours, the punchline is that it already is. <laughs> it already is. And if you're in Christ, the same is true of you. If you are in Jesus... You already have everything you need. Ultimately, you lack nothing. And for those of us who have been chasing, let me just ask, are you any happier? This endless pursuing, this endless appetite for more. Do you have any more peace in your life? Stop falling for the discontentment trap. Don't be a pawn in the system. Some of you are biting the hook right now. And the answer is not more stuff. It's getting the hook out of your mouth. For some of us, maybe for all of us, it's probably not a super soaker or a trapper keeper. (laughs) My guess is you're chasing after something though. You and I, we are not what we have. We are beloved children of God. And God is a generous God. We are made in his image. Generosity is our family trait. For God so loved the world, he gave. And there's a lie at work in our culture that measures status by possessions and whispers to us, you are what you have. Let's stop buying into that. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's found in being the beloved child of God, and you already possess that through the blood of Jesus, through the finished work of his death and resurrection. May we come to truly understand that that is enough. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at BridgeChurchTN. Thanks again for listening.